0: Welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 13th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We're going to start with today's weather. Today should be uh, have times of sun and clouds with a high of 29 degrees. Tonight will be mainly clear with a low of 21 degrees. Saturday will be breezy with times of clouds and sun with a high of 43 degrees. And now we turn to local and state news. Lawmakers back Don't Say Gay bills. Sulander's support measures aimed at LGBTQ issues. Jared McNett reports from Des Moines. Six Northwest Iowa Republican legislators are backing two related Iowa House bills that are akin to Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay bill. Representatives Skylar Wheeler of Hull, Steve Holt of Denison, Tom Genieri from Lamars, John Wills from Spirit Lake, Bob Henderson from Sioux City and Matt Winschittle from Missouri Valley all have their names listed on House Files 8 and 9 which each address a range of LGBTQ-related issues. House File 8, introduced Wednesday, states that teachers in Iowa public schools cannot instruct students in kindergarten through third grade on matters of sexual orientation or gender identity. HF8 also pushes for school boards to provide age appropriate and research based instruction in human growth and development. House File 9, also introduced Wednesday, would bar schools from affirming a student's gender identity if it differs from what is listed on their official birth certificate unless there is parental consent. In addition, HF9 states that school staffers are not allowed to encourage or coerce a student to withhold info related to their gender identity from a parent or guardian. Wheeler, a major proponent of the 2022 law that bans transgender athletes from competing in girls' sports, said the two bills are all about parental rights. It's up to parents to decide what is best for their children. We send our kids to school to learn subjects, such as math, science, reading, and writing. We don't send them there for teachers to parent our children. Wheeler, the chair of the Education Committee, said, It's up to parents to provide the support that students need. This bill's goal is to put parents back in the driver's seat when it comes to parenting their children. Critics of the bills have said they could make schools unsafe for LGBTQ students and that teachers may be forced to out students to unsupportive parents before they're ready to do so. It only took the Iowa legislature three days to release an unrelenting attack on LGBTQ youth, Executive Director for Iowa Safe Schools Becky Taylor said in a statement. Taylor's organization lists its mission as providing safe supportive and nurturing learning environments and communities for LGBTQ and allied youth. Taylor then took each individual bill to task. House House File 9 will put LGBTQ youth directly in harm's way and create a legal and administrative nightmare for school administrators. HF8 is ultimately a form of big government censorship intended to create a hostile school climate for LGBTQ students. Representative J.D. Scholten, Democrat from Sioux City, said the proposals were disappointing and has previously written that other anti-LGBTQ bills proposed by Republican state legislators put targets on people's backs and are harmful to values and the economy. Holt, who sits on the Education Committee, said there's a growing problem of schools ignoring parental rights but didn't provide a specific example of that happening within his district. This is a fundamental question of parental rights and authority. Public schools and government institutions do not own children, and it is past time we restore the proper balance and respect for parental authority, Holt said. As to whether or not he thought LGBTQ students in Iowa could be imperiled by the changes the bills would bring, Holt said to conceal such information from parents is ludicrous. If, in fact, there are safety issues involved for the child, there are other measures in place and laws in force that can address that. Holt did not mention which specific measures and laws. (coughs) Henderson, a longtime teacher, said certain LGBTQ issues in schools are far removed from what he believes education should be about. It especially should be in the hands of parents to deal with in their children's lives, Henderson said. Parents should be in charge of the education of their children. In 2022, Iowa legislators proposed 19 bills focused on transgender issues, including the one banning trans girls and women from participating in girls and women's sports in Iowa. Former Sioux City Rep Steve Hansen, a Democrat, voted against the athlete bill and was later pilloried for the vote in a campaign ad from Henderson, who defeated him in November 2022. Supervisor's wife faces fraud charges. Nick Heitrick reports from Sioux City. The wife of Woodbury County Supervisor Jeremy Taylor faces 52 counts of voter fraud for an alleged scheme in which she fraudulently filled out absentee ballot requests and voter registration forms and cast absentee ballots on behalf of others during Taylor's unsuccessful run for Congress in the 2020 primary election and his re-election to the county board in that fall's general election. Kim Phuong Taylor, 49, was arrested Thursday and pleaded not guilty to 26 counts of providing false information in registering and voting, three counts of fraudulent, fraudulent registration, and 23 counts of fraudulent voting. She was released on a personal recognizance bond and ordered to surrender her passport and may not apply for a new one. A trial was scheduled for March 20th in U.S. District Court in Sioux City. A federal indictment unsealed Thursday spelled out a scheme in which Kim Taylor allegedly approached members of Sioux City's Vietnamese community and filled out voter registration forms in their names, and also voted absentee ballots, signing affidavits with their names. Her actions took place leading up to the June primary election, in which Jeremy Taylor unsuccessfully ran for the Republican nomination for Iowa's 4th District congressional seat and leading up to the November general election, in which Taylor defeated incumbent Democrat Marty Pottebaum by nearly 2,000 votes for the District 3 seat on the county board. A call seeking comment made to Jeremy Taylor's cell phone went straight to voicemail, and no one answered his home phone. He also did not respond to a text message seeking comment. Kim Taylor's attorney, John Greer, of Spencer, Iowa, declined to comment on the charges. According to a U.S. Justice Department news release, the FBI continues to investigate the case. A spokeswoman at the FBI's Omaha Field Office referred questions to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Tony Morfitt, spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Northern District of Iowa, said he could not comment on the indictment or the investigation. Woodbury County Auditor and Election Commissioner Pat Gill confirmed Thursday he notified the Iowa Secretary of State's office after his office was contacted about the potential voter fraud just before the November 2020 election. Gill said he was instructed to contact the FBI. We received a call from one of the folks that had a ballot voted for them, Gill said. Gill has scheduled a press conference for 11 a.m. Friday at the Woodbury County Courthouse to further discuss his office's role in the investigation. He said Thursday his office provided the FBI with suspected fraudulent registration forms and absentee ballots. According to the indictment, Kim Taylor, whom Jeremy Taylor met while teaching in Vietnam, approached Sioux City residents with Vietnamese backgrounds, who had limited ability to read and understand English, and offered to help them vote. Prior to both elections in 2020, she helped those people fill out voter registration forms or fill them out herself, and submitted them to the county auditor's office. Kim Taylor also is accused of signing absentee ballot request forms for residents who were not present or told residents they could sign the forms for other family members, a violation of a registration affidavit in which applicants swear they are the person named on the form. The indictment says Kim Taylor visited numerous households in the Vietnamese community to encourage them to fill out their absentee ballots, in some cases filling out the ballot and signing the accompanying affidavits for people who were not present or telling family members they could sign on their behalf. Taylor then delivered the ballots to the auditor's office, causing the casting of votes in the names of residents who had no knowledge of and had not consented to the casting of their ballots, the indictment said. Kim Taylor voted her own ballots in both elections, the indictment said. Jeremy Taylor was seeking the county board seat after resigning from the board earlier that year over questions about his official address. After an investigation, Gil ruled Taylor, who was first elected to the board in 2014, could no longer hold his District 2 seat because he had improperly used an address for a former home in Sioux City on his voter registration, but was living in a home in District 3, violating a state law requiring county supervisors to live in the district in which they were registered. After Taylor's third-place finish in his primary race for Congress, a Woodbury County Republican panel selected him to run against Pottebam for the county board's District 3 seat. After redistricting in the wake of the 2020 U.S. Census, Taylor, a former state legislator, now represents District 5 and currently serves as the board's vice chairman. He's up for re-election in 2024. Trades building halfway complete. Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. Sioux City Career Academy's new construction trades building is halfway complete. The addition to the Harry Hopkins Center along Business Highway 75 is set for completion in July. Students will be able to start enrolling in the program in a few weeks. The 12,000 square foot building is intended to provide a controlled environment for students to build two houses simultaneously. It is a fairly simple building with two large bays for the houses and a classroom. The main facility is built with some exterior items and the interior left to complete. Over two years, students will build a 1,300 to 1,400 square foot house and learn introductory construction, HVAC, electrical and plumbing trades. Right now, we just don't have that opportunity for students to experience those trades hand-on in our classrooms, said Katie Toller, principal of the Sioux City Career Academy. This kind of opens the doors to a whole other world. In June, the school board accepted a $3.8 million bid from h Construction of South Sioux City for the project. The total cost will be $4.15 million, including architectural and engineering fees. The official planning for this project started more than three years ago. The Sioux City Community School District graduates roughly 1,000 students a year. Jim Vanderloo, Director of Secondary Education said, The district's goal is to prepare those students to have a plan or goal in mind for the future. The district has programs for students who want to go into specific areas, such as education, medicine, and computer technology, but this was a missing area. We wanted to address this need, Vanderloo said. The district does not expect hundreds of students to participate in the program. If we can get 50 or 75 students a year walking out with an interest in the trades area, we not only help those students, but we helped out community. We helped our labor force, he said. Vanderloo and Towler looked at other schools and programs throughout the state and nation. The two partnered with Western Iowa Tech Community College to build the program off of those programs, as well as the needs of the community, student body, and labor force. The district already has an introductory construction course and a woodworking course, and in the last few years, they have sent students to attend WIT courses in HVAC, plumbing, drywalling, and more. We have had a growing interest in those areas, so we know know the demand is there. We just needed to bring it all together and package it in a way where kids can explore all of that home building trade within one space, Towler said. The students will start their junior year completing the outside of the building, and during their senior year they will tackle the interior. There are plans to have local contractors work on the project with students and teach the specialty trades, Towler said. By doing all of the trades needed to build a house, the district is allowing students to explore varying career opportunities. As a result of this, we will have students who will say, You know, I thought I wanted to go into construction, but I think I'm really enjoying the HVAC side of it, or the electrical side, Towler said. At the end of the two-year program, they will have received four different certificates and a construction diploma. Some of the courses in the first year include an introduction to construction, framing techniques, drywalling, roofing, and exterior finishing. At the end of the year, students will receive a carpentry certificate and a wall framing and roofing certificate. In the second year, courses include advanced drywalling, interior doors, cabinets and millwork, wall coverings, floor coverings, plumbing, footings, and air conditioning. At the end of the second year, students will have received a drywall certificate, an interior finishing certificate, and a construction diploma. These aren't one-hour classroom courses. The students will spend half their school day out at the trades building, receiving both hands-on and classroom instruction. What happens to the houses when they're done? Vanderloo said the district is exploring a variety of options, including auctioning them off, pre-selling them, or partnering with Habitat of Humanity or the Home Builders Association. Vanderloo said the district is currently looking for instructors, trades workers, or businesses to partner with. The instructors do not need a teaching degree, but recent relevant field experience. Republicans to move quickly on Reynolds' private school proposal. Caleb McCullough reports from Des Moines. Iowa lawmakers are set to move quickly on a bill proposed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds to designate millions in public funding to pay for students to attend private schools, setting the bill up for subcommittee hearings in the next week. Reynolds' proposal would allow parents to set up an education savings account that would receive $7,598 from the state, a student's full per-pupil funding at a public school that can be used for tuition, supplies, and other expenses at a private school. Reynolds' office estimates the bill would cost $106.9 million in the first year. The House Education Reform Committee, a new committee specifically for the purpose of considering the legislation, will hold a public hearing on the measure on January 17th. In the Senate, a subcommittee will consider the legislation on Thursday. Leaders in both the House and the Senate signaled as the session began this week that they wanted to move quickly on the legislation, which opponents say would be detrimental to public schools, especially those in rural areas with already strained budgets. Supporters say the program would give parents more choice in education, help students find schools that best fit their needs, and improve the quality of both public and private education. Republican Ken Rosenboom of Oskaloosa, the chair of the Senate Education Committee, said he supports the measure and will work with the rest of the Senate Republicans to resolve any issues with the bill. He did not say when he expects the bill to move to a full-floor vote. I'm generally supportive, he said. I have not had the chance to get through all the details of of it. I have questions like everyone should have. While recording this weekend's episode of Iowa Press on Iowa PBS, Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said the legislation will see a vote in the Iowa House, and he thinks it has the support to pass. Grassley chairs the Education Reform Committee. I feel confident we'll have the support. But there's going to be a vote in the House either way, he said. Iowans are going to get to see where their legislature stands on this issue. Grassley also didn't say when the bill will go before the full House for a vote, but he said it will be a top priority for the chamber. We're going to continue to follow the committee process, follow all the things that are tied to it with the calendars and things, he said. But if and when the support is there, as it moves forward, we're obviously going to want to take action. The top line item from Reynolds' bill is the education savings accounts, which would devote $7,598 from the state that parents can use for educational expenses. For some schools, that amounts to more than the cost of tuition. The average cost for a Catholic school in Iowa last year was between $2,800 and $4,000 for K-8 school and $9,000 for high school. Executive Director of the Iowa Catholic Conference, Tom Chapman, said. For Protestant Christian schools, the average is $5,938 for elementary, $6,138 for middle, and $7,592 for high school, according to the Iowa Association of Christian Schools. Beyond tuition, the money can be spent on textbooks, fees or payments for educational therapies, curriculum fees, software, and materials for a course tuition for vocational and life skills education, education materials and services for students with disabilities, and standardized test fees and test fees associated with college admissions. (laughs) Unspent funds in one year would roll over to the following year. Once a student graduates from high school, unspent funds in their education savings account would be returned to the state general fund. The bill also includes measures that supporters say will allow public schools to compete with private schools and address some concerns opponents have. School districts would get $1,250 in funding from the state for each student that lives in the district but attends a private school. Additionally, it allows unspent funds in teacher leadership initiatives and professional development programs to be used to increase teacher salaries. During the first year of the program, an education savings account would be available to any student enrolled in a public school. Students starting kindergarten and families with students enrolled in a private school making less than 300% of the poverty line. By the third year, all students, both public and private, would be eligible, regardless of income. The cost of the program would be $106.9 million in the first year, according to estimates from the governor's office. One concern opponents have raised is the lack of options for some parents in areas where there are no private schools. According to Department of Education data, there are 40 counties with no private schools, nearly all of them rural counties. There are 185 private schools in total, with 33,413 students enrolled in the 2022-23 school year. Brashley said the proposal could expand the market for private schools, meaning new schools could open in those areas that currently have no private schools. We've already seen expansion of current private school systems we have without a program like this, he said, during the taping of Iowa Press. So there may be more of those being created around the state from a program like this. Despite having no opportunity for public comment on Wednesday, spectators packed committee rooms in the Capitol, many wearing America Needs Public Schools t-shirts and expressing opposition to Reynolds' plan. Tiffany Welch, a mother of two from Clive, was there to advocate against the proposal. She said she wanted to see public money remain in public schools. Welch moved from California to Iowa when she was pregnant with her first child, partly because she knew it had good schools. Now she's worried the school choice program will detract from that. I've seen firsthand with my own children and my own experience how a quality public education has really impacted my life, she said, and I want the same for my kids. In a statement on Wednesday, Mike Baranek, president of the Iowa State Education Association, said private schools have less oversight over who they allow in and who they employ and that most families will not benefit from private school assistance. The ISEA represents public school teachers in Iowa. The ISEA stands firmly in support of Iowa's excellent public education employees, our students, and our public schools. A strong public education system is the foundation of a healthy and prosperous state and should be guaranteed to all and fully funded, Baranek said. Jennifer Conferst, the Democratic House leader, said she's happy the Education Reform Committee will have a public hearing on the bill. While Grassley remains confident the bill will pass, Confirst said she doesn't think the support is locked in. I think it's important that we have transparency behind this process, she said, and because Iowans overwhelmingly oppose school vouchers, I'm thrilled that there's going to be a public hearing. In the Senate, Democratic Whip and member of the Senate Education Committee, Sarah Trone Garriott of Windsor Heights, said the proposal would hurt the vast majority of Iowa students in public schools. I want to make sure that for the parents of the 511,000 kids, pre-K-12 through K through 12, in our state, that their choices are respected and supported as well, she said. Any proposal that takes away from our public schools will hurt our kids. Applications due January 18th for vacant Woodbury County Board seat. Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. Applications for the vacant Woodbury County Board of Supervisors District 3 seat are due January 18th, with interviews to be conducted on January 23rd. Ten people have already expressed interest in the vacant position. Applicants must submit a cover letter, resume, and completed questionnaire in person to the auditor's office by 4 p.m. on January 18th. The committee will then hold public interviews starting at 9 a.m. on January 23rd and make an appointment to the Board of Supervisors on January 24th. A committee made up of Treasurer Tina Bertrand, County Attorney James Loomis, and Auditor Pat Gill met on Thursday to decide the appointment process. The vacant seat was previously held by Rocky DeWitt, who left to serve in the Iowa Senate. All of the interviews will take place publicly on January 23rd, and interviewees should be prepared to be available the entire day. Breaks will be taken from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. If an applicant is not available that day, their application will still be considered for appointment, Loomis said. Each applicant will receive five minutes of presentation with committee questions to follow for an approximate total of 20 minutes per applicant. No particular order will be set for the interviews. Instead, names will be drawn randomly for fairness, Loomis said. The order will be announced at the beginning of the interviews. I feel good about the process that we've put in place today. I think it gives all of the applicants an equal opportunity to present themselves in the best light possible. Their qualifications, their skill set, that makes them best suited to serve Woodbury County, said Loomis, the committee chair. Deliberation and decision will take place at 8:30 a.m. on January 24th, with swearing-in taking place before the board of supervisors meeting that night. Gill says he does not want to draw the process out and get the vacant board and get the vacant position filled while the board of supervisors is going through the budget process. The process to fill the vacant seat is similar to the one the county used to appoint Bertrand to the treasurer seat. When Mike Clayton retired in 2021. Loomis said the intention of having a questionnaire for those who are interested is to facilitate the interview process and allow the committee to learn about the candidates. It is an adjusted version of the questionnaire used for the treasurer position. The names of those who have already expressed interest are Todd Wieck of Lawton, John Rick of Moville, Nathan Heilman of Correctionville, Angela Cale of Lawton. John Van Eldick of Lawton, Mark Nelson of Correctionville, Willard Brian McNaughton of Lawton, Barbara Slonaker of Sioux City, Jeanette Beekman of Pearson, and Charles Clark of Lawton. Hale and Clark were identified as having no party affiliation, while the rest were identified as Republicans. Nathan Heilman, John Van Eldick, and Willard Brian McNaughton ran with DeWitt and three others for the seat in 2016. The 14-day window for voters to submit a petition for an election started on Wednesday. If that deadline is not met and voters do not approve of the individual who is chosen, a petition for a special election can be made within 14 days of the appointment. The petition must be signed by at least 10% of the votes cast in the last general election, which would be at least 2,882, Gill said previously. All voters in Woodbury County can vote for all seats on the board, not just the district they live in. Gill said a special election would cost around $40,000. Nebraska governor names predecessor to U.S. Senate seat. Marjorie A. Beck reports from Lincoln. In one of his first acts as Nebraska's governor, Republican Jim Pillen named his predecessor to the state's vacant U.S. Senate seat on Thursday. Pillan surprised no one in naming fellow Republican Pete Ricketts to the seat vacated Sunday by Ben Sass. The governor said 111 people applied for the vacant seat and nine people, all Republicans, were interviewed. He said he chose Ricketts based on their shared conservatism and Ricketts' promise that he would later run to be elected to the seat. I don't believe in placeholders. I believe that every day matters. Placeholders don't have any accountability to the people, Pillen said. Ricketts said he would fight for conservative values and a strong national defense, and would work to hold leaders in Washington accountable for waste and fraud. This is an unexpected opportunity, Ricketts said. I am humbled and grateful. He also promised to continue Sasse's vocal criticism of the Chinese Communist Party, saying he will work with Republican colleagues in the Senate to reduce China's geopolitical influence. Rickett's appointment came even after some fellow Republicans expressed reservations about Pillen selecting his benefactor. Pillen was elected in November in large part because of Rickett's backing, which included more than $100,000 of his own money, contributed directly to Pillen's campaign. Ricketts also gave nearly $1.3 million this year to the Political Action Committee, Conservative Nebraska, which ran a slew of attack ads against Pillen's primary opponents, including the Trump-backed candidate, Charles Herbster. <coughs> and these news briefs. Person rescued from bin near Merrill. From Merrill. A person was rescued from a grain bin Wednesday near Merrill, according to the Plymouth County Sheriff's Office. Deputies responded to the incident at 4.44 p.m. in the 24,000 block of K-22, which is southwest of Merrill. The subject was removed from the grain bin without incident, the Sheriff's Office said in a statement. In addition to the Sheriff's Office, the following agencies responded to the incident. Hinton Fire, Hinton Ambulance, Merrill Fire, Merrill Ambulance, Hinton Police Department, Iowa State Patrol, and Mercy One Air Med. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 13th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries. Dustin Lane Dusty Herbold was received by his shepherd, the Lord Jesus, on Thursday, January 5th in Kingsley. A service was held on Monday, January 9th at St. John Lutheran Church in Cushing, Iowa. Interment was in Cushing Cemetery. Dusty was born July 13, 1975, in Sioux City to Jerry and Leah Falken Herbold. He was Kingsley Pearson High School alumni, 1993, where he was active in baseball, wrestling, and football. He was an excellent catcher and started for the Iowa Central College team. Dusty married Jody Lynn Still on June 19, 1999. Their children are Colton Lane and McKenna May. Dusty began his working career in the engineer department of Wilson Trailer in 1994. He was an example of employee loyalty and worked his way up the ladder within the IT department. He was proud of helping design the first Wilson Penn Trailer which he purchased for livestock shows. Dusty loved coaching his son in baseball and football, but especially as part of the Siouxland Stars baseball team. He also loved watching his daughter show her goats and lambs. Dusty was known for his one-liners, jokes, and stories. He helped anyone in need. Francis A. James, 99, of South Sioux City, passed away on Tuesday, January 10th at a local nursing facility. Services will be at 4 p.m. on Saturday at Nelson Berger Northside Chapel, with Deacon Patricia Roberts officiating. Burial will be at a later time, later date, at the Santee Cemetery in Nebraska. Visitation with the family present will begin at 3 p.m. on Saturday at the funeral home before the service. Online condolences may be offered to the family at myerbroscapels.com. Frances was born on August 6, 1923, in Santee, Nebraska, to Frances and Eugenia White Wabashaw. She received her education in Santee. She met William H. James in Santee, and they moved to Sioux City in 1944. The couple married in Moville, Iowa, on August 5, 1945. To this union, three children were born, William Jr., Jean, and Kathy. They made their home in Sioux City until moving to South Sioux City in the 1960s, where they have remained. Frances enjoyed working as a nurse's aide at the St. Vincent Hospital and at the Westwood Nursing Home in Sioux City, from which she retired in the early 1980s. She enjoyed her retirement, spending quality time with family, especially her children and grandchildren. Frances enjoyed plants, flowers, quilting, working on crossword puzzles, and word find games. She loved reading and was a member of the Saint Paul's Indian Mission in Sioux City. Arvind Hurloff Cafton, seventy eight of Mapleton, died Tuesday, january tenth. Services will be january fourteenth at ten thirty AM at Saint Mary's Catholic Church in Mapleton. Burial will follow the services at St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery in Mapleton. Visitation will be january thirteenth from five to seven PM at Armstrong Van Houten Funeral Home in Mapleton. <coughs> Judy L. Lewis, 76, of Sioux City, died Tuesday, January 10th. Services will be January 14th at 10 a.m. at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the funeral home. <coughs> Robert H. Bob Jacobson, 92, of Sioux City, passed away on Tuesday, January 10th. Services will be at 3.30 p.m. on Saturday at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel at 6200 Morningside Avenue in Sioux City, with Rev. Roger Madden officiating. Private family burial will be held at Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will be 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. on Saturday at the funeral home. Robert Hanson Bob Jacobson, the son of Christopher and Mary Hanson Jacobson, was born March 16, 1930, in Rochelle, Illinois, Bob grew up in Rochelle and graduated from Rochelle Township High School in 1948. He furthered his education by attending Iowa State University on a sports scholarship. Bob was a member of the ISU baseball and football teams and graduated from the Dairy Science Program with honors in 1952. On August 18, 1952, Bob enlisted in the United States Army and served in Korea until his honorable discharge on May 17, 1954. After returning from the military, Bob met his future wife, Marion B. Plecky, while, while she was attending ISU. They were married on June 16, 1956, in her hometown of Winona, Minnesota, and this union was blessed with three sons, Chris, Tom, and Bill. In the mid-1950s, Bob started his career with Carnation Dairy, and with his work, The family lived in several different Iowa communities until he was transferred to the home office in Houston, Texas, in 1960. In 1970, the family relocated to Sioux City when Bob became the manager of Robert's Dairy Plant. He continued working at Robert's until they closed the plant, and then he started his own business, Nutriturf Lawn Service, which he operated until his retirement. Many of Bob's hobbies centered around his love for sports. Throughout the years, he enjoyed golfing and coaching. Above all, he enjoyed family vacations and spending time with his family. Bob was an active member of First United Methodist Church, where he served on different committees and as a trustee. Memorial donations may be directed to the Siouxland Humane Society. Brian E. Anderson, 45, of Sioux City, passed away unexpectedly on Wednesday, January 4th, at Crossroads Group Home. Celebration of Life event will be held at 2 p.m. on Saturday at the Goodwill of the Great Plains Conference Room, located at 3100 West 4th Street. Brian was born to Christine Anderson and Danny Talbert, both of Sioux City. He graduated from Lincoln High School in Lincoln, Nebraska. Brian volunteered at the SC Mission and worked at hy v for a time. He attended Simple Life Day Program and would spend most weekends at his sister Katie's house. Brian was a gentle soul who made friends easily and had a huge heart. He had a contagious laugh, and his smile would light up a room. Brian loved to watch his favorite football teams, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Pittsburgh Steelers. During baseball season, the channel was always tuned to the Kansas City Royals. Brian loved to eat out, go shopping, and play with Katie's fur babies. (coughs) Brian will be greatly missed. RIP, bud, until we meet again. Memorials may be directed to the Thompson family. Susan K. Hanna-Klaus, 70, of Hawarden, Iowa, died Wednesday, January 11th. Services will be January 17th at 11 a.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel in Sioux City. Burial will be at a later date. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the funeral home. And finally, Mary Pearl Seals, was born September 4, 1938, and moved to heaven on Monday, January 9. Services will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday at Corinthian Baptist Church at 814 School Street in Des Moines. Visitation will be held at 10 a.m. prior to the funeral, also at the church. Burial will take place at 11 a.m. on Monday at Memorial Park Cemetery, 6605 Morningside Avenue in Sioux City. Arrangements are with Memorial Services of Iowa in Ankeny, Iowa. Online condolences may be made at ankenymemorial.com. And we still have a few brief uh, news briefs from the local area Sioux City man sentenced on gun charge from Sioux City. A Sioux City man who fled from police has been sentenced to five years in federal prison for illegal possession of a gun. Malik Rimmer, 26, PLEADED GUILTY IN JULY IN U.S. DISTRICT COURT IN Sioux CITY TO POSSESSION OF A FIREARM BY A FELON ACCORDING TO THE U.S. ATTORNEY'S OFFICE RIMMER LED Sioux CITY POLICE OFFICERS ATTEMPTING TO PERFORM A TRAFFIC STOP ON A PURSUIT BEFORE HIS VEHICLE BECAME DISABLED HE THEN FLED ON FOOT AND AN OFFICER OBSERVED HIM HOLDING A BLACK OBJECT IN HIS HAND RIMMER WAS ARRESTED AFTER SCUFFLING WITH OFFICERS POLICE FOUND A HANDGUN ON THE PATH RIMMER HAD FLED The firearm was listed as stolen. USD basketball player pleads not guilty of rape. From Vermillion, South Dakota. A University of South Dakota men's basketball player has pleaded not guilty of raping a woman in his on-campus apartment. Mahai Carsoana, 20, who is from Romania, entered his plea Thursday to two counts of second-degree rape and one count of interference with emergency communication. His trial was scheduled for May 15th in Clay County Circuit Court. Carsoana is accused of raping the woman on December 9th in the Coyote Village Student Housing Unit, where, according to court documents, the woman had called friends to pick her up before Carsoana pushed her onto a bed, took her phone, and dismissed calls from her friends before forcibly having sexual intercourse and other sexual contact with her. After the alleged assault, the woman left his apartment found her friends in the apartment building and went to the emergency room where she contacted police. Carcewana was arrested hours later. He was released from jail December 13th after posting bond and was ordered to relinquish his passport. A 6-foot 11-inch sophomore, Carsuwana transferred to USD after playing last year at the University of Toledo and had appeared in each of the Coyote's first 10 games this season. He has been suspended from athletic participation while the charges are pending. And now just a few items from National and World News. Special counsel named. Biden acknowledges papers were found in two spots at his home. From Washington. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Thursday appointed a special counsel to investigate the presence of documents with classified markings found at President Joe Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, and at an office in Washington. The announcement followed Biden's acknowledgement Thursday morning that a document with classified markings from his time as vice president was found in his personal library, along with other documents found in his garage. Garland said Biden's lawyers informed the Justice Department on Thursday morning of the discovery of a classified document at Biden's home, after FBI agents first retrieved other documents from the garage in December. It was disclosed on Monday that sensitive documents were found at the office of his former institute in Washington. Robert Herr, the former Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Maryland, will lead the investigation, taking over from the top Justice Department prosecutor in Chicago, John Lausch, who earlier was assigned by the department to investigate the matter and who recommended to Garland last week that a special counsel be appointed. Hur will begin his investigation soon. The extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter, Garland said, adding that her is authorized to investigate whether any person or entity violated the law. This appointment underscores for the public the Department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters and to making decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law, Garland said. Biden told reporters at the White House that he was cooperating fully and completely with a Justice Department investigation into how classified information and government records were stored. Biden's lawyers found the first set of documents in a locked closet in the offices of the Biden-Penn Center in Washington on November 2nd, but publicly revealed that development only on Monday. Richard Sauber, Special counsel to the president said that after Biden's personal lawyers found the initial documents, they examined other locations where records might have been shipped after Biden left the vice presidency in 2017. Biden did not say when the latest documents were found at his home, only that his lawyer's review of potential storage locations was completed Wednesday night. Russian troops barrage Solidar. Attackers reportedly see heavy casualties. U.S. Navy veteran freed. From Kyiv, Russia said Thursday that its forces were edging closer to capturing a salt mining town in eastern Ukraine, which would mark an elusive victory for the Kremlin, but come at the cost of heavy Russian casualties and extensive destruction of the territory they claim. More than a 100 Russian troops were killed in the battle for Solodar over the past 24 hours, Ukraine's Donetsk governor, Pavlo Kirilenko, said in televised remarks. The Russians have literally marched on the bodies of their own soldiers, burning everything on their way, he said, while reporting that Russian forces had shelled a dozen towns and villages in the region in the past day. Russian forces are using mortars and rockets to bombard Soledar in an unrelenting assault, struggling for a breakthrough after military setbacks turned what the Kremlin hoped would be a fast victory into a grinding war of attrition that has dragged on for nearly 11 months civilians are trying to survive amid that bloodbath as the Russians are pressing their attacks, Kirilenko said. Serhi Cherovaty, a spokesman for Ukraine's forces in the east, said Solodar was hit by Russian artillery more than 90 times in the past day. Solodar's fall would be a prize for a Kremlin starved of good battlefield news in recent months after losing the significant city of Kherson in December. It would also offer Russian troops a springboard to conquer other areas of the eastern Donetsk province that remain under Ukrainian control, particularly the nearby strategic city of Bakhmut. Fighting continued elsewhere in Ukraine. The deputy head of Ukraine's presidential office reported Thursday that two civilians were killed and a further eight were wounded in Russian attacks Wednesday. At the United Nations, Ukraine's first deputy foreign minister, Emin Zaporova, told the Security Council that Ukraine will seek a General Assembly vote on a resolution on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's ten-point peace formula that includes the restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity and Russia's withdrawal. Meanwhile, Russia released a U.S. Navy veteran who crossed the border from Poland into the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad last year and was held there for nine months. Former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson announced that Taylor Dudley, 35, was handed over to U.S. custody in Poland on Thursday. Richardson said the U.S. embassies in Warsaw and Moscow played a role in securing Dudley's release. A spokesman for his family said Dudley had traveled to Europe to backpack. U.S. inflation eases six months in a row. Jobless aid applications edge down. Long-term mortgage rates drop. From Washington rising U.S. consumer prices moderated again last month, bolstering hopes that inflation's grip on the economy will continue to ease this year and possibly require less drastic action by the Federal Reserve to control it. Inflation declined to 6.5% in December compared with a year earlier, the government said Thursday, the sixth straight year-over-year slowdown, down from 7.1% in November. On a monthly basis, prices slipped, 0.1% from November to December, the first such drop since May 2020. The softer readings add to growing signs that the worst inflation bout in four decades is steadily waning. U.S. applications for unemployment benefits fell to their lowest level in 15 weeks, as the job market continues to show resiliency. The number of Americans applying for jobless aid for the week ending January 7th fell to 205,000, from 206,000 the week before, the Labor Department said Thursday. After two straight weekly increases, the average long-term U.S. mortgage rate came back down again this week, but remains a significant hurdle for many prospective homebuyers. Mortgage buyer Freddie Mac reported Thursday that the average on the benchmark 30-year rate fell to 6.33% from 6.48% last week. A year ago, the average rate was 3.45%. And finally, vaccination rate falls in kindergartners. federal campaign will encourage U.S. families to immunize children. From New York, vaccination rates for U.S. kindergartners dropped again last year, and federal officials are starting a new campaign called Let's Rise to try to bring them up. Usually, 94 to 95% of kindergartners are vaccinated against measles, tetanus, and certain other diseases. The vaccination rates dropped below 94% in the, 20, pardon me, in the 2020-21 school year during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. A Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study released Thursday found rates dropped again in the 2021-22 school year to about 93%. The pandemic disrupted vaccinations and other routine health care for children, and also taxed the ability of schools to track which children weren't up to date on shots. CDC officials said loss of confidence in vaccines is another likely contributor. I think it's a combination of all those things, said Dr. Georgina Peacock, director of CDC's Immunization Division. Health officials focus on kindergarten because it's when most children enter school systems, Public schools typically require vaccinations as a condition of attendance, though some exemptions are allowed. The new numbers suggest as many as 275,000 of kindergartners lack full vaccine protection. Falling vaccination rates open the door to outbreaks of diseases once thought to be in the rearview mirror, experts say. And now we move to local sports. Mustangs stay in first in GPAC. Northwestern avoid upsets, Briarcliff door to fall short on the road. From Hastings, Nebraska, the number 20-ranked Morningside men's basketball team held off a second-half Hastings rally to claim a 75-67 to 67 road victory Wednesday night. The Mustangs led by 14 points after Trey Powers hit a three with 16 minutes and 30 seconds to go in the second half. But the Broncos rallied, cutting the Morningside lead to two points on Tyreek McMurrin layup. Morningside responded with a traditional three-point play by Ellie Doble to go back up to five with 12 minutes and 49 seconds to go. A few possessions later, Grady Corrigan hit a three to make it 52 to 50. After a defensive stop, Phil Cicero attacked the rack and got the bucket to go tying the game for the first time since it was nothing-nothing. The Broncos took their first lead of the game, 57-54, on a three with 9.26 to go. But the Mustangs then went on a 10-0 run, pulling away to avoid the upset. Jack Dotzler led Morningside with 18 points. Double added 17 points and 10 rebounds, and Aiden Vanderloo came off the bench to contribute 12 points. Morningside shot 46.6% from the... 27 for 58, and 35 percent, which is 7 for 20, from downtown. Hastings finished the game shooting 46.4 percent at 26 for 56, and 39.1 percent, or 9 for 23, from behind the arc. A big difference in the game was the Broncos were just 6 for 11 from the line, while the Mustangs were 14 for 18. The, The Mustangs also rebounded Hastings 40 to 28. Morningside improves to 13-3 overall and 7-2 in the G.P.A.C., a game ahead of Jamestown and Northwestern, tied for second with 6-3 records. And finally, in women's college basketball, Dort women drop a first game. From Crete, Nebraska, the number 3 Dort women's basketball team dropped its first game of the season, falling to Doan 71-66 in a Conference Road matchup Wednesday night. The game was tight through the first three quarters, as the largest lead for either team was four points. A three-pointer by Macy Nielsen gave Dort a 54-52 lead at the end of the third quarter. The defenders proceeded to score the first eight points of the fourth quarter, finished off with a Shunoven free throw to give the visitors their largest lead, 62-52, with six minutes left to play. Dort's defense held the Tigers scoreless for nearly five minutes. Back came Doan, however, as Riley Rice converted a pair of free throws and knocked down a three-pointer as the Tigers went on an 11-0 run to retake the lead, 63-62, just two minutes later. The teams traded baskets over the next two minutes, after a Schoenuwen basket put Dort up for the final time. 66-65, 66-65, to Doan closed the game by scoring the final six points to get the win. Rice converted a three-point play to put the Tigers in front for good, and then made a couple of free throws with 49 seconds left to make it a two-possession game. The defenders, who shot 42% for the game and had just one quarter, the first, where they shot 50% or better, were held to their season-low point total. Dort turned the ball over 18 times, their second-highest total of the season. Dort's Carly Gustafson finished a rebound shy of another double-double, scoring 20 points to go with nine boards. Janie Shunovan added 13 points and seven rebounds, giving the defenders two players in double figures. Macy Seavers dished out a game-high six assists and pulled down five rebounds. Mac Hatcliffe scored a game-high 21 points for Doan, and Macy Holtz and Riley Rice netted 16 points each. Dort falls to 10-1 in the GPAC and 16-1 overall. The defenders hold a one-game lead over its next opponent, Briarcliffe, at the midpoint of the league season. Doan improved to 5-6 in the conference, 11-6 overall. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday the 13th of January. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.